Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting from the Big Talker 106.7 FM here every single Saturday, 10 a.m. Eastern. I am one half of your host, Yael Osaski, coming to you from Vienna, Austria. And I'm joined on the line, as always, by my good mate, good friend, good colleague, David Clement, who is in Toronto, Ontario. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going. It's going. It's been uh, one half of a week. I mean, I've completely destroyed my sleep cycle uh, by staying up too late, trying to watch results come in that never came in. Uh, I'm sure many listeners can sympathize. They were probably in the same same boat as I was. Um, but yeah, it looks like this is going to drag out a little bit. And uh, yeah, what a week. What a week. Yeah. Yeah, what a week, uh, definitely from our side. Um, you know, if uh, you probably, if you're listening to the station and you heard me on Joe Catanacci's show yesterday, we did talk about the terrorist attack in Vienna, which did take away a lot of our time and focus, uh, surely mine. You know, I was up all night, uh, not waiting for election returns, but for waiting to know when we could leave our house. Uh, this is the, the terrorist guy who shot up uh, parts of the downtown in Vienna, and uh, was doing this uh, essentially at the exact moment when the country was locking down. So that meant that in those last few hours of freedom, everybody was heading out to the bar, everybody was heading out to the restaurants. And, uh, you know, he was able to shoot four people uh, who unfortunately lost their lives, shot some police officers as well, but they recovered. And uh, then they shot the guy dead within nine minutes done. Um, But yeah. If you want to go back and listen uh, to Joe Catanacci's show, you can subscribe to his podcast where I talk about that a little bit more. Uh, why I think it's pertinent is he had a big terrorist attack and it made absolutely no impact on any presidential stuff, David. Uh, we've yeah. talked a little bit about this. You know, you would think that some kind of foreign policy crisis somewhere sometime would make some impact on the election, but this seems like it was a foreign policy proof election unless it's Ukraine, I guess. Yeah, strange. That didn't make any blip in terms of either campaign, neither did the the incident, the beheading in, in France, um, and the whole question about the cartoons, which you and I have chatted about uh, before, if you're listening to this and you're familiar with the cartoon crisis of years ago. Um, I forget which Let's try to, was. actually, uh, related to that point, let's try to get our uh, friend of the show, Fleming Rose, on. I'm sure he's in high demand. Yeah, we should. We should. Yeah, so if you if you go back in the, wherever you listen to your podcast, if you go back, we do have an episode with Fleming Rose, who was the editor of the original Danish cartoon. So he has some some great insights there. Hopefully we can get him back on the show. But yeah, it was it was strange that neither of those incidents were brought up in the campaign at all um yeah so yeah why do you think that is why do you think that foreign policy really wasn't a topic that was discussed at all i mean well it it should have been the trump administration had kind of worked quite closely to normalize relations um, for a bunch of arab countries with israel which is a pretty important uh important step in terms of peace in the middle east but yeah it really never it never had any traction 
Yeah, and I think we'll just dive right into the election and the results. Uh, let's hit refresh on our browsers, David, so we can kind of see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and and those of you who are listening, uh, you know, you probably will have a, a bit more up to date results because we're a bit busy here and uh, we do tend to pre record, so you're not, we're not going to have the the most up to date things. Uh, but you know, definitely why it didn't. I think there's so much in the culture war right now. This is a culture war election, and you know, I kind of, I've been hearing this more and more from different people. I've been speaking to uh, a couple of other Americans who live here in Vienna. The idea of Trump for so many people is he is just an abomination to them so much that essentially the issues really do not matter. And it does come down to personality. I know that's really simplistic for a really complicated election with a lot of different topics. But I think that's why foreign policy just never even made it there. And I think the one foreign policy debate they were supposed to have got scuttled, so that didn't get discussed. And essentially, we have no clue how you know the wars are going to be waged, if there are going to be any. We have no clue what the relations with the European Union are going to be. Yep. Uh, with China, we have no clue. It was just a lot of insults back and forth, and I, I, that did not make it very clear. So I think it just comes down to the culture war as we do every four years, unfortunately. Yeah, I've been, which is interesting because I know when I was watching CNN's coverage and they did the exit polls, which I mean are hit or miss. You take those as you wish. But a lot of people were, like my natural intuition is what you just just described, but a lot of people were describing their vote choice based on policy issues specifically. Um, something like 70, 60, 70% of people were like, no, I'm voting for, for Biden or for Trump because of their position on certain policies. So it's very strange. I, I mean, could that, could that be another version of the shy Trump vote where you're asked to rationalize your vote, you know, on the spot with some pollster person who comes up to you and you're like, Oh uh, yeah, it's definitely for this policy when really you just totally yeah. hate that guy or you hate the other guy. Uh, maybe there's some element of that too. But that, yeah. then that kind of goes into your culture war comment where it's like, there's been this huge culture war that's been waged and maybe just out of fear of like reprisal, people just kind of clam up and it's like, Oh yeah, well obviously it was because of the issues and, um, and explain things in that way. So, I mean, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, I think the one interesting takeaway, and there's a lot of people trying to break this down and saying, okay, well, like who, what does this election tell us? Um, And so for our listeners, I'll just describe what we're looking at at the moment in which we're recording um, because things could be different when this actually goes on the air, but as of right now, Joe Biden is on the cusp of having the election called. Uh, most major networks, with the exception of CNN, have called Arizona for Joe Biden, which puts him uh, essentially uh, one state away from winning the presidency, which could be Nevada, Georgia, North Carolina, or Pennsylvania. Um, So he is quite close. It looks like the gap is closing in both Pennsylvania and Georgia um, in favor of Joe Biden um, as those mail-in votes come in. Um, 
So we don't have an outcome yet where someone has definitively won, but if things were trending in one way, they're certainly trending towards former Vice President Joe Biden. But it was not the blue wave that... that yeah, real quick before we go to the uh, um, blue wave or yeah. red mirage, as I've heard <laughs> others say, um, uh, you brought up an interesting point about the different networks that have called it. Mm-hmm. And this is really fascinating. And I think it, it, you know, we have to think about this a little bit too. And the New York Times got into a bit of a uh, kerfuffle and had to delete a tweet because uh, they said at some point, and, you know, this is the New York Times nowadays, they're becoming very, uh, you know, I don't know how to say it, moralistic. Uh, but they're like, look, uh, news outlets, uh, call the different states and that's their job because we're here to provide the facts and then they had to go back and and say like actually it's the uh, election departments of these various states that call it we just report it (laughs) it's like true yeah and this is really bad and yeah and this is a situation where uh, and this will be really written about in the next couple of days with arizona the first network or first media organization to call arizona was fox news and Trump and his guys, they called up Fox News, Roger Ailes, or whoever else is running yeah. the thing now, and they said, what is this? Retract it. They brought on... I was watching at this I part. watched this live, it, too. Oh, you did? So yeah. it's the, the guy who, I guess, is their election guru, and he's just like, explain yourself. <laughs> Why did you call Arizona for Biden so early? Yep. And he kind of gave his reasoning. It seemed okay. Well, he was and like, then yeah, it, seemed it was... It would yeah. be a statistical anomaly for this to go the other way based on what we can see. It'd be like four standard deviations. Um, and you could see the host face just like, hmm, okay, I don't know exactly what that means, but that sounds that important. Bar, yeah. <laughs> okay, that sounds like it could be a change. So, yeah, that was like a pretty big deal. And then I think they, some people are reversing that now, and, and who knows – and this is all made uh, all the worse by the pandemic and people who are mail-in voting. And look, let's just be frank. A lot of states that don't have their, their house in order, and they didn't know how to process these things very quickly. Cool. There are plenty of other states that had uh, you know, maybe even more absentee ballots but were able to do that fast enough. But all these others that were still yeah. waiting on, they weren't able to cope. And exactly, it's not like you didn't know, right? You knew this oh, election yeah. was coming. It didn't come out of nowhere. You knew that you were going to have an influx of absentee ballots and mail-in votes and all of that jazz. So the fact that some of these counties and districts didn't, in advance, set up the infrastructure to be able to process this on the day of is a bit of a head-scratcher because it's like, this wasn't a surprise. You knew it was coming. Yeah. Yeah. And there was... A lot of ink spilled back in June and July. That's when New York State had a couple of primaries that they tried to do uh, with more mail-in voting, and it took a long time. It took three weeks in some races before a winner was declared. So, you know, they had practice. Everyone knew it was coming. And look at all the other states. You know, look at Mississippi, Alabama. I mean, Texas was a bit lagging, but, you know, now they've got it all in there. Yeah, Florida did it. Like, yeah, if, they, if Florida was able to do it and they did it quickly, I mean, come on. I understand the calculations that come into it, because then if they say, well, there's 180,000 outstanding ballots, Biden is up 200,000, something like this, then that would mean there's no way that, yeah, so totally. therefore yeah. we'll call it Biden, yeah. which I get it, but you know, still, most people don't 
read into those numbers and the percentages and they're just like, okay, well, it looks red on the map or it looks blue on the map. Yeah. Either way, it's still a nail biter. David, are you surprised that it came down this close? Or do you think once the uh, all the votes are actually counted, it will not be that close and it will be more decisive in one favor? Um, I think it'll be close. My, my original prediction was Biden between 270 and 290. And right now, if he has Arizona and Nevada, he's at 270 on the dot. If he picks up either Georgia or Pennsylvania, I don't think he'll win North Carolina. Um, if he picks up one of those two, then he's in the 290 or uh, 286 category. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it's, I expected it to be this close. I thought that the pollsters got it wrong. You can actually, again, for, for listeners, if you're listening to the podcast version, Yael and I both did give some predictions in the lead up to the election. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, I, I saw it being much closer and that's really what has people scratching their heads is that this was supposed to be a blue wave and yes, the Democrats will most likely win the presidency. Um, but they did not have the gains in the Senate. They spent a hundred million dollars plus trying to unseat Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham who won by pretty substantial margins. They weren't really <laughs> close. Um, yeah. I mean, that's sad because I'm no fan of Lindsey Graham. And I think I've talked about on this program before when I was in South Carolina here recently at my parents' lake house, nothing but TV ads all about this election and the amount of money that was just dumped in is just insane. Insane. Uh, yeah, so it's yeah like, Lindsey, he, Graham, Lindsey Graham re-elected back in, so who knows? Well, and it was funny in his victory speech, he, <laughs> I think he called it a really bad, really bad investment <laughs> when he yeah. spent $100 million <laughs> and he still wins. So it doesn't look, I mean, there, it, there's the possibility of runoffs in Georgia. I still think that the Republicans win those. So the Republicans control the Senate. They picked up seats in the House. Uh, it just... Is was not the blue wave that they thought. Republicans and Trump in particular essentially were up um, percentage-wise in terms of votes with every demographic except for white men, um, which, again, also makes you scratch your head. It, it kind of pokes a huge hole in the Trump supporters are racist narrative mm -hmm. um, because more black men, more black women, more Hispanic men, more Hispanic women, more people in the LGBT community as a percentage of the vote voted for Trump than in the last election. So, um, Oh yeah. And yeah. that's all bubble. That's all bubble media, you know, analysis that they're going to have to really break through because yeah. there have been, and you and I know, I mean, we work in uh, often center right circles and we do see that there are a huge amount of people who are, either minorities or people who might be LGBTQ, all the rest, who are tend to be more Republican or, or more conservative. And yeah, maybe they didn't, this is the thing, is you don't know the intensity of someone pulling the lever when they vote for a Trump or Biden. You just know that they did. Everyone votes for their own reason. Um, you know, you can't put up an analysis about why this particular group voted or that. I think everyone's choice is pretty individual. But it just goes to show that not everybody is repulsed by Trump or not repulsed by 
Trump enough to consider switching parties, which I know well, many people that we know definitely did. And so I think what it comes down to is the cultural battle will not be won. There's a market cap on the the appeal of intersectionality and the politics of race that just doesn't resonate with ordinary Americans of all backgrounds. So yeah. I think that there's a real, like there, there's a peak in terms of how much you can um, campaign on that issue. And at least my take, I mean, I know the Dems are going to be essentially in the war room, probably going, okay, guys, and this is if Joe wins. If they don't win, this is a huge failure. Uh, Going, okay, well, we got the presidency, but what the heck happened? Like, this is a disaster. And I think it should be a pretty clear mandate that the party has got to shift back to the middle. And they have to... They have to abandon this kind of flirtation that they've had with the Green New Deal, with um, banning fracking, with all of the other kind of more extreme left-wing ideas. And they have to find a way to meet working class people um, of all stripes and figure out how they're going to be, like, what, what the definition of the Democratic Party is going to be. Um, because it, I, it just despite the fact, I mean, we look at how close this election is. Imagine if Trump had just been able to behave himself in the first debate. Sure. Right? Would I, We would probably be having a different conversation. Imagine if Trump hadn't mocked, um, hadn't mocked uh, John McCain after he had died and, and continued to do so. Um, would he be in a better place in Arizona? Probably. I mean, I'm yeah. sure that Cindy McCain actively campaigning for Joe Biden helped sway some votes in Arizona. Uh, we certainly saw that in terms of the Senate race there. Um, yeah. And, and our, um, our, our buddy, we haven't had him on the program yet, but um, Mike Noble, who's a pollster out there in Arizona, he's actually yeah. on Joe's show on Thursday. And, you know, they were talking about the strange thing about Arizona is everything is really right around Phoenix. It's like in the city of Phoenix in the suburbs. That's essentially where like 90% of the population is. And, you know, there's a very diverse community of people who have totally different ideas. You have a lot of people who've moved from California and from Northern States to enjoy the Arizona heat. And, you know, if you were losing that, I mean, just strategy is bad. I think to the Joe Biden thing, David, what I think is interesting is we covered a lot of the Democratic primary, and Joe Biden was the moderate guy, right? He was yes. the guy who you know, kind of championed markets. He was against uh, the identity politics, did not favor a government takeover of health care in terms of like Medicare for all, uh, generally seemed to be much more, let's say, innovation-friendly. Uh, apart from vaping and stuff, but that's different. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and that's why he was uh, and why a lot of people opined that he had won that. The fact that all of these issues happened, maybe the background of all the violence over the summer, some of the cities, uh, looting, rioting, uh, legitimate protests, all this kind of stuff seemingly pushed him to the left. Uh, I don't know if his rhetoric changed that much. I, I don't know if you have more of an analysis on that. I don't know if it did. It's just that 
you have Joe Biden as the figurehead, and you have all these people in the background. You have the squad. Uh, you have Kamala Harris, uh, could soon be president, by the way. And, you know, I don't know if that changed much in terms of that's how people calculated. At least in North Carolina, that's kind of what I saw, is they say, well, Joe just represents the left and socialism. Therefore, we, re- we reject him. Well, he lost, think- he lost the perception battle, right? Because that mm. isn't Joe Biden, but he lost the, the, the perception battle that he's not controlled by the far left of the party. And, I mean, that could be true. It could not be true. Um, but regardless, voters certainly thought it was true, in my opinion. Do you have anything else to say on the president before we move to the, some of the other sexier topics the, that uh, were decided on Election Day 2020? Well, I just think the big thing here is that it's incredibly rare for an incumbent to lose. And I think it does ultimately just come down to his his personality and behavior. As much as some people loved it, I think it really did push enough people away where he could have very easily won this, regardless of COVID, regardless of everything else that's gone on. I think his his personal like conduct was enough yeah. to maybe be what sways things. So I would say how to, uh, let's say, quantify that is by the term presidential um, or respectability. And this is something that believe me, is, is very tiresome because I hear it all the time from non-Americans, obviously living in Europe, talking to a lot of Europeans, a lot of Canadian family, everyone just saying like, well, the world uh, is not in favor of Trump and don't like Trump and they don't like his ideas and what he stands for. And uh, there, I think there are a couple polls, you know, if uh, either of these candidates were to be done, um, you know, kind of what would happen. So I, I think it's it's pretty fascinating that the entire globe, of course, always will favor the Democrat, because I would argue that, especially in Europe and Canada, generally the populace is more center-left anyway, so they're always going to favor the Democrat. There's no doubt there. But I'm, it's, it's, very, it's a difficult position to be, because I think the U.S. is a very unique system. It's a unique place with unique political ideas that have taken root for a long time, and it just does not translate to these other countries. Yeah, I think one thing that the international observers forget is that it's a binary choice. And as much as there's third parties in the U.S., it's, it is very much a Democrat or Republican choice. And so, I'm like speaking in terms of the Canadian context, a lot of people will be like, well, how could you vote? Like, I can't imagine people voting for Trump. How does this make any sense? Well, they don't. There, there are not five parties in the House, of, like in Congress, um, where you have five serious choices on your ballot that can appeal or oppose to your interests in, in kind of more concrete ways. And so it's literally, if you're voting, it's just a justification, like, what are your core issues? Uh, and then how does that, how do the two candidates overlay? And depending on what those are, Trump may be a more attractive candidate for you, even though he his behavior is um, beyond questionable. Biden may be an attractive candidate for you, despite the fact that he may not be particularly inspiring. Um, so for international observers, they kind of forget that it's like, it's just one or the other. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's, I, I've heard very much the same things. It's like, how could any person vote for him? 
And it's like, well, I can give you plenty of reasons. You're not going to like these reasons. <laughs> but most people think about when they think about, you know, government and elections in the U.S., it's very different from uh, in many other countries. And, you know, people look to the government just to set priorities sometimes. But also it's just like, hey, make sure my business can run. Make sure my taxes are low. Things are stable. Nobody's trying to, you know, loot my house and burn it down. And we're good. Um, not everybody endorses everybody wholesale. You know, what does your election really, or what does your vote really mean? For many people, it's really symbolic, and they think about it a lot, and it's somehow supposed to reflect you. I hated this term of the last four years, Trump supporters. I really didn't like that uh, because there were Trump voters, and there's this idea of Trump supporters, of like these people who are total partisans with Trump armbands that just like will do everything that he says, no doubt there is a part of the electorate who will follow Trump and agree with him, but you know people disagree with their politicians all the time. And uh, you know, as far as I know, we're not in a a, uh, a cult, mm -hmm. you know, some kind of dictatorship, cult of personality. Many, maybe people think that, but it could yeah, be either well, way. Yeah, well, for me, the big thing is I think a lot of people fail to differentiate between Trump voter and Trump supporter. Um, there's a huge difference, as you've said, like. And I, I said this in 2016, and I think it's accurate now as well. Um, there are reasonable reasons and justifiable reasons to have voted for Trump over Hillary. I don't think I would have made that choice if I was able to do that. But there are reasonable reasons to have voted for Trump over Hillary. And I will say the same thing for this past election. There are reasonable reasons to vote for, um, to vote for Trump over Joe Biden. Again, I don't think I would make that decision. Now, if you support everything the president has done and you're a diehard Trump supporter and you are 100% on all of the crazy stuff that's gone on, well, then I, I have some questions. <laughs> but I would also have some questions of people who were gung-ho, uh, let's say, about everything Obama did. Um, it's there's a difference between an Obama voter and someone who is going to follow. I think Obama. the term is Obama bot. I believe was the term <laughs> <Yeah>. that was <laughs> popularized. Yes. Well, how many? How many? Like I've you know I've I've traveled very red state areas. I hate that term again, but I know a lot of people who are uh, quote unquote Trump people. But you know these are you know they they actually vote for Trump or support Trump with a smile. Um, and it's a lot of owning the left, owning the libs. Uh, there's a lot of that, well, you know, I don't think, because if you had asked him, what's the Trump, you know, ideology, nobody can name that. There's like, well, I just like what he says. No one has like a um, wholesale wedded to all of Trump's ideas because his ideas oscillate from day to day, depending on what's on Fox News or, you know, what's trending so, on Twitter. And I think that that's where you get the issue of people in government who are ne who are actually more tied down to what the president does. And then you see them having to do the mental gymnastics of like supporting one thing one day and then coming out and supporting the exact opposite because Trump changed his mind and they just basically bounce all over the place with the president. I think that, that I, that's definitely worthy of criticism. I, I mean, the, the young new congressman elect who, did you see this on Twitter? Is it Madison Hawthorne? Um. Yeah, uh, I think Crawford or Crawford. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. he's North Carolina representative that many of you have probably seen who 
uh, won his election pretty handedly because yes. I think it's Hendersonville. It's a pretty Republican place. Yes. But his first tweet was like, cry more, lib. And it's like, dude, you're on your way to what? You're, you're a congressman. Like, you're going to make some really important decisions. And your first, like, act as congressman-elect is to just be I can't, I, all of the words that were about to come out of my mouth are not suitable for radio. So I'll let people fill in the blanks, but it just seems like if there's one huge, I mean, minus all of the policy stuff, if there's one big negative takeaway over the last four years, it's that we don't see our opposition as people anymore. And both sides are very, very guilty of that. And I know that Biden in one of his like, intermediate addresses where he was like talking to the crowd said like for too long we've seen our political opponents as enemies like i'm going to be an american president not a democratic president which i thought was very presidential of him to say um but this like well that's an that's an obama line yes of course <laughs> i don't see red states or blue states i see purple states of america <laughs> yeah exactly um well I added to that <laughs> it'd be interesting to go back and look at um, the AOC documentary, Bring the House Down, because I don't remember what she said when she was elected. Um, I think the the bigger focus was on the primary, because there she was going against, you know, the guy who had been representing that area of New York, you know, I don't know, for 20 years or something. So I think more of the, the shocking factor was in the primary. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if she came out and, and said something like, you know, Republicans, because she does this thing where, um, everyone who opposes her, they're not, they're, they're just Republican. I find that very strange. And maybe it's just because she's talking more about the political thing, but it's like, oh, Republicans say this and Republicans say that. It's like, well, you know, it was actually a think tank that put out a report on this. Uh, they're not a Republican outlet. <laughs> you know, they might be more favorable to conservative ideas, but you, you're totally right. You know, the othering of it is very strange. Hmm. And those of us who, follow third-party politics or those who are a bit more ideological and not really party-focused, all of this is, is a bit crazy. And, you know, if your political party is your number one identity, uh, we kind of got a problem. Yeah, I think that that's unhealthy. Oh, it's it's really bad. And and there's a lot of people who, and I'm, I'm picking on my own Facebook feed here, you know, friends from back home or people I, I knew in university, college, who were so invested in this election. You know, these are not normally political people. Most of the time they're from the arts or, you know, they are still in school mm -hmm. or, you know, they teach in English departments so wedded to this and so all in. And then, you know, they just live through this entire prism. And it's like, look, that's not healthy at all. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we do politics not because it's supposed to run our life, but, you know, it's something that we kind of do. It's necessary just to safeguard our freedoms and civil liberties so that we can uh, do other stuff, which is actually productive and important. Yeah, your day should not be consumed by the headlines of what the president said yesterday or this morning or what he tweeted. Like I've had this conversation. That with said, a lot of you people. can always. Uh, that said, you can always uh, listen to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, yes, if you want to <laughs> consumerchoiceradio.com. Yeah, if you want to talk issues <laughs> and not party politics and partisanship, then we are your place <laughs> to listen. 
no doubt. And, uh, you know, we wanted to get a different perspective from a lot of this stuff because David and I obviously have a very North American focus and we're very much in the weeds. Uh, we thought it'd be kind of interesting to bring in some of our colleagues, our international colleagues at the Consumer Choice Center, consumerchoicecenter.org. Uh, these are, are people who come from all different backgrounds, live in different countries. And I think it'd be kind of interesting. We talked about what's the international view. Uh, we think it'd be kind of cool to bring them in and see their take on the election and then maybe discuss some of the big consumer issues that were also on the ballot uh, that we haven't talked about yet. But there were actually some very good consumer choice wins that we didn't discuss yet. But um, David, you think it's cool if we uh, bring in some of our colleagues? Yeah, let's bring in let's bring some of the bring in some of the crew and uh, and and hear what the international side of the Consumer Choice Center team thinks about what is going on right now with election 2020. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. We're here with our colleagues here at the Consumer Choice Center. Uh, we wanted to get them on to get a different perspective. Uh, you're probably tired of David and I talking about hashtag election 2020. Uh, but we wanted to get our colleagues. So we have Managing Director Fred Holda. We have Bill Vietz, who's our Senior Policy Analyst over there in Europe. And then we have Fabio Fernandez, our Media Associate, David as well on the line. So guys, let's uh, yeah. let's just go quick. Who wants to give a first take here, well, David? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm going to interrupt you because before we get into this, just for our listeners' sake, I want to highlight how truly international this group of fine gentlemen is. Um, so Fred is German based in London. Bill is from Luxembourg, which is actually a country, believe it or not. And he is currently in Turkey, I believe. And uh, Fabio is, uh, is Italian and is in Milan. Beautiful. All right. Yeah, guys. So yeah, let's hear your take on the election. What's it like to look at um, the U.S. election from an international lens? So if my, I might first... Uh, it's just interesting. So I used to work uh, during a couple of German elections, just like counting votes and like managing a polling station. Um, and for I think for many people, it's just surprising that this very thrilling process just takes very long. And I, I see this even like non-political family members and friends are just being confused why this takes long. Um, so probably you guys can just tell us why and uh, that the process is just very different. Um, but I, I think it's just like a first observation that usually in many countries, like after 10 minutes, you basically know the results. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Um, and we still don't know it, but it's just kind of exciting as a political just to kind of keep following it. It's, it's a, it's a multi-day event. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give a quick one. The, the system here in the States is totally decentralized. So actually in various counties, you do elect a, an election supervisor who's supposed to take care of elections for that particular county. And there are thousands of them. And then all of the final tallies are actually held by the Department of Elections of every state. So it's very decentralized in that aspect. And uh, they do the old fashioned, you know, either vote counting machines, uh, or they're doing it by hand. It really depends. There's not a uniform way of doing it. I guess that's just the easiest way to respond. I don't know, Dave, if you have more. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and different states and even different counties have different rules so some of the states were allowed to basically process the ballots as they got them so the the, the reason why it's so slow is because it's mail-in ballots and so you have to verify that it's that it's real 
Um, and then they have to feed them through the machine, which is what you do on the day of when you actually vote. Um, and so some counties and some states weren't allowed to start opening those envelopes until the day of the election. And so you can imagine these poor poll workers in some small county in, in Pennsylvania has 800,000 ballots to process. And then day of, they're like, okay, we can start opening ballots now. And yes, there's a room of, let's say, 50 people, but they're manually inspecting these ballots and then feeding them through the machine. And then if the machine says, ah, we actually don't know what's going on with this one, well, then you have two scrutineers who look at it and decide, like, is it Democrat? Is it Republican? What was the intent of the voter? So it's all very, um, it's, it's actually quite an intense process because of these mail-in ballots. And it's like one more question. Did I get it right that Nevada actually took a day off yesterday? Well, they stopped counting at a certain point. Yeah, they said, okay, we'll just count these in the morning, which normally does not happen. I don't know what the deal is there. Yeah, that doesn't, that, we were chatting about this earlier. Nevada just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> to be fair, though, um, I would just add for us Europeans, it's a bit easy to be, uh, to, to, to criticize how this can take so long. I'd just like to remind everyone that during the European, European elections start on a Thursday and end on Sunday, and we have the results between Monday and Tuesday. So, so far, if the, if the election results come tomorrow, um, that would still be quicker than, than the amount of time we take in Europe. So, uh, before, before I, I see some people on Twitter grandstanding on this. We actually also take our time in Europe when the European elections are taking place. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and Fabio, you are uh, originally from Brazil, and I saw a lot of stuff about Brazil, and they count this stuff like super fast. Is that true? And, and what do you think of the election stuff that's coming out right now? Yeah, so for me, for, uh, from an international perspective, um, I see that, especially at this time, it's impossible not to follow everything on Twitter. And I see that Italy, for example, has a very complicated electoral system and electoral uh, law as well. I think very uh, complex as it is in the United States, but it seems that everyone is uh, professional uh, about uh, the United States election, so they don't understand their own electoral system, but they are uh, right there in Twitter commenting and giving their opinion on the U.S. election. I think the Brazilians are doing the same. Um, the difference in Brazil is that they have um, everything electronic, so the counting of the votes is much faster. That's uh, because we have 100% uh, electronic voting. So maybe that's, that's the difference. That's why we have like, the result in maybe three or four, four hours after the, uh, the post closed. Um, yeah, but in Italy, we have the same uh, type of uh, paper ballots that the U.S. use in, some, in most of the states. That makes me think of one of the best tweets I've, I've seen so far um, was uh, a, a Russian uh, individual who posted, um, I'm from Russia. The, the weight on the election results is unacceptable. In Russia, we know the results well in advance of the election, <laughs> which was, uh, was some, some much needed uh, comedy or comedic relief in regards to all the craziness. Um, we chatted, Yael and I chatted about how for international observers, and this includes Canada as well, it can seem weird on why Americans would vote for Trump. 
Um, the general consensus in Europe is that they're very pro-Biden. Pro Same thing within um, in Canada. I was just wondering if you guys have any insights of what the, the local temperature is on Trump versus Biden, where you guys are at. Yeah, I think it's, it's a, a European consensus. I, I saw one map, which I think Italy is like the most uh, Trump understanding country in Europe, if, if I remember it right. Um, yeah. I mean, it was Poland. Oh, Poland. But, okay. Yeah. Also Catholic. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that's why we don't have these elections and ask international people. We ask Americans. As a, so totally different response. That's a, another thing I yes. wanted to bring attention to, uh, Consumer Choice Center. Obviously, we love consumer choice. And there were some wins. Uh, I think everyone's focusing on presidential stuff. But I want to talk about some of the wins. One of them that we were involved with uh, was Proposition 22 in California. So this decouples... Uh, the ability to become an independent contractor from California's AB5 law, the anti-contractor law. So it actually does give a pathway for rideshare drivers to be independent contractors and actually to also have health plans. Uh, so it was really interesting. That was a huge one. Um, I don't know what that will mean if there is a Biden administration because there's talk of a national AB5 law. Uh, but uh, good things in California do happen every every once in a while. So that was really cool to see. And then the other one I wanted mm -hmm. to get your your take on, if you guys have it, is uh, we did see legalization of cannabis in Arizona, New Jersey, South Dakota, and Montana. And then we have uh, medical cannabis in Mississippi, uh, which uh, a former editor of mine actually is a a patient and uh, uh, was able to be a patient in another state, but was not able to in Mississippi, and now she will be able to. So uh, any thoughts on uh, cannabis now making the U.S. still way more liberal than most European countries on cannabis? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really good news, right? It's, it looks that the, one of the biggest losers of this election was the war on drugs. I also saw, I think, some other states decriminalized uh, drugs like Oregon. Um, that, that is definitely good news for, for uh, the criminal justice system and uh, the usual victims of this. Um, that's pretty exciting to see. I hope we get some of this over in Europe also soon. So, um, because uh, we we always like to criticize the U.S. for the criminal justice system, but then actually on state level, the U.S. seems to be at least in parts much more advanced than most parts of Europe. But I saw that was it South Dakota which legalized recreational use of cannabis. Yeah, it was like there, it was a two-step thing. It was they voted for medical, and then the next step is okay. Do you just want to go full recreational? So then it was like yes, and both of them passed. So it goes to full recreational. That's really exciting. South Dakota voted for Trump, right? It's correct. It's a red state. So that shows across party lines, voters uh, still understand that the war on drugs has failed. And even if they vote Republican, many of them uh, vote for the legalization of recreational cannabis. Uh, so that's exciting to see. So uh, maybe, David, maybe soon the Americans will follow the Canadian lead and just go for national legalization yeah i mean we're, we're we're maybe at the tipping point now when it just becomes so widespread that all of the other states will realize like okay this is ridiculous like i'm pretty sure idaho is now surrounded by legal states on both sides so it's like why i mean it's it's a country you can freely move about in um, so hopefully we're at the tipping point where you just get federal legalization um, or all of the states just realize, okay, yeah, our prohibition mentality is, is silly and let's give it up.
Um, so fingers crossed for that. Yeah, and it's important. So, Arizona voted it down, actually, at the last election. So it's good to see that a lot of the voters changed their mind or maybe there was a better campaign. I don't know. But they had previously been asked, and it was a no. So that was good. So I just cheated and looked at C-SPAN. So South Dakota actually voted nearly 62% for Trump. So it's like massive red pro-Trump state, but at the same time, they legalize recreational cannabis. Um, would be interesting to see like age groups, if it, like especially younger Republican voters voted for recreational cannabis. Uh, but that's definitely good news that consumers will have more choice and less, well, be less likely to end up in jail for victimless crimes. Yeah. That was a golden one. Um, another, another one that I liked, it's a non-binding vote, uh, but this is in Washington State. Uh, and this is uh, very much in David's wheelhouse, who's been on the plastic war uh, north of the border. So they actually uh, voted to repeal a tax that was put on plastic bags, take away plastic bags at the grocery store. Uh, so there was a tax originally that was on there, and then they voted to repeal that. It's actually a non-binding vote, so it's nothing that the legislator has to uh, necessarily follow through with, but the pressure is there, which is interesting for you know a very green uh, Washington state to have this, because people don't like to pay taxes on this stuff, and in a pandemic when we're more reliant on plastic, uh, people realize we shouldn't have to make people pay more. Yeah, and my question to you guys, actually, uh, we see that people tend to focus on the presidential election, but we see that uh, in the House, uh, we have the majority for Democrats. It seems that's going to end that way. And also on the Senate, it seems that the Republicans are going to keep the, the majority of the seats. So what this influence the future for consumer policies and legislation in the U.S.? Interesting. Yeah, uh, definitely for... Things like if you think of cannabis legalization, it is something that Joe Biden talked about and Kamala Harris. Uh, so it will be on the agenda for the House and it'll be a very uh, regenerated House. There'll be a lot of younger members, you know, a bit not as lethargic as before. So probably you'll have a lot of great ideas that come out uh, or some very bad ideas from a Democratic House. But really with the Republican Senate, you know, who knows if it's going to pass. I think for cannabis specifically, I think now with all of these states voting, uh, that actually might have turned the tide enough. So we could see something there. Uh, the other big ticket items are things like healthcare, uh, which will come up, but that I think is pretty much a non-starter for the Senate. Uh, but again, we'll see. Uh, I mean, there's the anti-contractor law is something that we really could see by probably mid next year that would probably be proposed in the House probably by these California legislators for some reason. And that could yeah. gain some steam. And, you know, you could actually see some Republicans look at that too. Uh, you know, the more, I would say, the nationalistic types who are uh, more favorable of Trump. But yeah, those are the big things for now. David, I don't know if there's any others that I'm missing. Yeah, the, the Republicans holding the Senate, which assuming they do, presents a very interesting... So if you're in favor of like political gridlock this may be like the perfect situation <laughs> because you, you will most likely have a, a Democrat um, president with a Republican Senate and a soft majority Democrat House with a relatively conservative Supreme Court. And so I think there's going to be a lot of back and forth over policy. The big thing is, is what does the Republican Party look like in terms of its embrace of populism moving forward? Um, so do they hop on board with some of those more left-wing, um, 
ideas of like contractor laws and things like that. I hope they don't. I hope the saner voices kind of prevail there. Um, but generally speaking, I think that the setup as if, if everything holds is going to be decent for consumers from the perspective of it'll be a lot more unlikely that crazy regulations will be passed um, or bans. And so knock on wood, that's what happens. Um, that could be, that could be good for, for folks who care about consumer choice. I'm not sure if we still have time for this, but I think it would be really interesting to see uh, what your thoughts are, what, what this likely result of uh, Republican Senate and a Democrat president would mean for immigration law. Hmm. Um, That's well, a good question. Yeah, I don't know. Reform on the Democrats. There, there wasn't, I don't know if there's any uh, large scale reform from there. And nobody is uh, apparently very satisfied with uh, status quo immigration policy, which is actually pretty good when you compare it to the rest of the world. I don't know of, of too much momentum. I don't know if that would uh, be one of the first things you'd, you try to do it. That might be something that you would try probably in year three uh, to maybe get through unless there's some kind of crisis, if something happens because of the pandemic in many countries in Latin America, for instance, uh, some people are pushed out. That could be a big thing, but I'm not sure about um, that being a huge one in the beginning. Yeah, and I think that the one, um, so from someone who is on the pro-immigration side of that debate, that may be one issue that kind of falls to the wayside because if the results in the House have shown us everything, it's that, or have shown us anything, it's that the democratic message or the perception that the Democrats were moving really, really far to the left, uh, I think scared away a lot of voters and the Republicans were able to like call Democrat socialists and, and convince voters that that was the case. And so if Joe's going to move back to the middle, um, which I hope that he would do as president, he may not actually take up immigration reform um, because he doesn't want to be perceived as slipping into that progressive side of politics. Now, I would disagree with him if he does that, because I think that the U.S. system um, can continue to be open and fiscally responsible. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, but I think that we could see that issue kind of fall to the wayside, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's a it, that'll be a hot topic. I mean, it also depends on what the conservative and Republican approach is on that. Like, does Trump-style populism continue in the RNC moving forward um, with a very anti-immigrant rhetoric? I'm not sure. Or do we have more of, like, the return to normal, the Mitt Romneys, the Nikki Haley's? Then that was, the, I mean, that party, the, the old Republican Party was very much in favor of merit-based immigration. Um, so it all depends as well on where the RNC goes. Yeah, and it's also important to look at the uh, states as uh, somewhere where we, we tend to do a bit more because that's where a lot of consumer regulations are passed. Um, there weren't too many governorships that necessarily flipped, as far as I can tell. So it's going to be status quo. We still have to see what the uh, state legislators provide. There might be something interesting there. Uh, obviously, Florida will remain in the GOP, uh, which, mm -hmm. at least for our issues, particularly vaping and things, is actually very good because they were able to block a... Uh, flavor ban for flavored vaping products. So that was great. That was good to see. Yep. We'll see what happens in the other states. I think there's, there's going to be a lot of more of these issues. Um, that's why cannabis is certainly something to be hopeful about. 
uh, definitely ride sharing and the sharing economy. That's one thing to where the pandemic, uh, you know, we haven't talked about it much yet, but I think it's still going to, it's still going to be really important because like a lot of people have been out of work. <laughs> a lot of people have not been able to work or to open their business. So a relief package, you know, we haven't talked about it at all the last couple of weeks, but that'll have to be really important. And the states are going to be really necessary there too, because it can't be administered by the federal government. That, that'll be way too complex. If you think counting yeah. ballots is hard, <laughs> just wait till, you know, trillions of dollars goes out the window. And that'll be important for figuring out, you know, what is the future of regulations on restaurants and alcohol and delivery and home sharing and flat sharing, all this stuff that, uh, you know, might change, maybe it'll improve. It's really hard to, to see right now, as soon as the, the pandemic, uh, you know, can be in its last days. But uh, our experience in Europe, where many of us are locked down right now, shows it probably ain't going away. No. And I think, oh, sorry, yeah, you're saying, Bill? Yeah, on, on that issue of lockdown, um, not, not, not related to the stimulus, but the um, Trump has tried to frame the presidential uh, decision over lockdown and or no lockdown, uh, depending on depending on who gets elected. Joe Biden has said that he doesn't want to lock anything down. Like, what is this? Like, depending on who becomes president, does that mean that there's going to be lockdown policies or not? Because right now in Europe, most countries are going back to what we had in March and April. This is very significant, actually, for, for, for many people, whether they can open their businesses or not. What do you, what do you think is going to happen? So I know that that was a strategy of the Trump campaign in terms of what they were highlighting in some of these states. And it was actually the reason why the Trump campaign argued that when Fox News called Arizona that they got it wrong. Um, because they were confident that based on the way lockdowns had impacted um, people in Arizona and his messaging in Arizona, that the, the, the assumption is that the mail-in votes are going to go for Biden. The Trump campaign was arguing, no, we don't think that's the case. We think you've called this too early. We think that the anti-lockdown voter is going to vote, like those are going to be dropped off in these drop boxes or on the day of, those haven't been counted. And we think we win that demographic based on the messaging. So I'm a lockdown uh, voter, count my vote. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's the thing. I was watching CNN yesterday and um, there was no, like the, the, the mishandling of COVID, right? That was supposed to be like, that should have been the nail in the coffin uh, for the Trump campaign. And yet it didn't end up being that. Um, Biden and, and Kamala Harris attempted over and over and over to try and highlight the mishandling of, of COVID as the reason why you should vote for, for Vice President Biden. But obviously it didn't, it didn't stick. Uh, I mean, states that, that it should have turned the tide for Biden, whether it be Ohio or um, or Georgia, which is which is close. I mean, he still could win Georgia because the count is very close. But um, you would think that that would be a no-brainer. They they failed to realize that the flip side of that is being perceived as pro-lockdown. And I think that that's one of the Trump messages that really stuck. Because I mean, we've had these conversations with people all over the world. If you're if you own a store, and the government is saying that you can't open that store and it's illegal to open that store. And you think maybe that you can do things safely. Um, 
it's it's hard to vote for a candidate for president who wants to basically shut your life down um, and stop you from being able to make mortgage payments and things like that. And so, yeah, I think the Democrats maybe misplayed their hand um, on COVID because the flip side, as you mentioned, Bill, is the real impact of lockdowns. Um, so we'll see whether that uh, ends up being something um, that turns the tide. I know in Nevada, things are particularly close as we're recording. Um, there were some murmurs that, um, again, the Trump campaign thinks that they will win Nevada because they think that they'll win Las Vegas, which is a city that needs people. They need tourists. And you have entertainers, performers, you have working class jobs, people working at blackjack table who are out of work because potential lockdowns and then all of a sudden they realize okay well my vote is going to go to the guy who wants to allow me to work again um so, so what we'll you're saying is we need to legalize gambling across the country so that we can have more las vegases <laughs> we should, yeah. there should be a las vegas in every state oh no doubt and they, they do have it on native american reservations and stuff or riverboats if you go to missouri in Europe, we had somebody actually call the election already. I'm not sure if you saw that a Slovenian prime minister uh, called the election for Trump. Uh, that was already yesterday. Uh, so uh, quite in advance. Well, he, he'll curry favor, or maybe that's like a Melania thing. Uh, he's like an old liberal, right? He was like part of um, sort of the anti, or a lot of the Yugoslav stuff. He was like a big liberal in this, this big economic debate. Um, yeah, but for the pandemic stuff, uh, the only thing that I've seen that the Biden, you know, um, let's say campaign, maybe administration, depending on how things go, the only thing they've talked about is like uh, a mask mandate and like faster testing. You know, nobody's got some, <laughs> there's no, there's no golden uh, policy. Uh, also for like how it, with voting, I mean, Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, uh, some, probably some of the worst death rates in the entire country. And he's like just as popular as ever. So most of the time it's not really tethered to, uh, that it's a lot about media messaging and framing. Uh, and that's one thing I wanted to ask you guys about the media framing, because obviously the U.S., big private media sphere, but many European countries, most media, or I guess the media that most people watch is usually mandated by uh, or some kind of state media, whether it be BBC or, or uh, any of the German news, something like that. Uh, how do you guys see kind of the media coverage in your countries versus like, let's say the States? Oh, so I mean, maybe I can start with my native home country, Germany, where uh, you have mandated to pay a TV tax per household. They don't call it a tax, but it's a tax because if you don't pay it, the government comes and takes it from you. Um, I think we spend about 8 billion euros, which is roughly $10 billion a year on the uh, massive state broadcasting. And it's even really hard for private media to compete because uh, it's just so massively funded. Um, not sure of how many good German television shows you're aware of. I don't know any. <laughs> so the quality of... I, I know a couple this... on Netflix, though. <laughs> yes, that, but that, that's new. Uh, but so the quality of what's produced is also not good, right? Because um, they just get their funding anyways, because people are forced to pay. So the quality is pretty bad. And most of the news reporting is done by government broadcasters. And it's not C-SPAN style, where they basically just show you a hearing. But it's, it's very opinionated. And... Uh, about 80% of journalists working in the state-funded media are uh, voting for left-wing parties. That's actually known. Um, so it's, it's extremely biased. And it's fine if a private news station is biased. I know that, for instance, CNN 
seems to favor the Democrats right now, but that's a private station and uh, viewers, consumers have the choice to watch Fox if they prefer that, right? Um, whereas if you have a state monopolist or de facto monopolist in media um, and that one is actually biased, that's, that's pretty nasty. I think something like a light version, something like C-SPAN, that's fine just to kind of give people access to watch very long, boring congressional hearings. I think that's good. Um, and that's not expensive, right? But our state broadcasters also spend hundreds of millions on getting the rights for the Olympic Games and showing soccer matches and these things. And they just outbid the private players because they just have like more or less unlimited money. So, and that should really not be the role of government to show you like trash uh, Europop music and soccer matches in the evening. Uh, very polarized as well here in Italy. I think they are framed, framing that as the good and the bad, and of course the bad being Trump. So yeah, very interesting to see how the media is playing. And I think they are following more or less how the media uh, pictures everything in the US. I think it's a copy of how the, the media in the US uh, perceive those candidates and they use the same rhetoric and the same arguments. So uh, pretty much the same here in Italy. Yeah, when, American, when Americans um, supposedly envy Europeans from certain public services that we have, I always remind them that if you, have, if you elect a certain administration in and you have a public broadcaster and then they, they get to make the decisions on who gets appointed to run this public broadcaster, you, I mean, you, you, you eventually create this, this, this problem to begin with, whether uh, you favor conservatives and then you worry that many people coming out of universities, especially in the journalism area, uh, tend to be more left-wing, or whether you're a liberal and you're worried that a conservative president will just appoint a lot of directors to this public broadcasters that are that are um, that are that are right-wing. Um, ultimately, it's just a better model to have to, to have the choice between different broadcasters and not making people pay for a public one that will become the playball of whatever political interest you have at that moment. Uh, I mean, if you're lucky in Europe, they're very boring. Um, which is still better than trying to frame the narrative on one political issue or the other. Well, there's, there's nothing worse, and this happens in Canada. There are a couple um, publicly funded comedy programs. And go, like, yeah, yeah the, thought, if the thought of government comedy makes your kind of skin crawl. Um, they'll be on Twitter and they'll like try and make jokes and then everyone will just dunk on them. Like, ooh, government comedy, so funny. Um, one thing that I've appreciated in watching this, because I've been watching this, I mean, a lot of people will be like, well, you live in Canada, so like, why do you really care? I mean, we're the country for whom it matters most other than Americans in terms of where this election goes. So I'm following things closely and I've loved being able to go back and forth between Fox and CNN. Um, one part because the commentary is different, but also because they focus on very different things. So CNN is all presidential race, all breaking down counties, all like who's winning, what the projections are, the mail-in votes, 2020's results versus 2016 results, where Fox is like flipping into congressional races and individual Senate races and interviewing people kind of on that local level. Um, and so, I, I mean, that for me is ideal. And yes, CNN is skewed left and yes, Fox is skewed right. Uh, but you have the ability to toggle between the two rather than trying to have some 
government-funded uh, news company trying to thread the needle to be perfectly nonpartisan, which, I mean, we all have our biases, so that's probably pretty difficult on an individual level, let alone an organizational level. So to, to wrap it up in our final question, I'll give everybody a minute. Uh, how do you think this election uh, actually maybe changes things or changes the dynamic in your own countries, either where you are, where you're from, and uh, how we might actually have some positive things for things like consumer choice or trade or whatever it might be? Fred, you can start. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks that if you get a gridlock that actually the different political parties in the U.S. have to start, or the two parties have to start working together, uh, which might be actually an opportunity to reduce the polarization which is out there and it's not just in the US we have that here in the United Kingdom as well that there is a massive polarization between the left and the right and that just you know you cannot attend any cocktail party or, or visit friends or neighbors without getting polarized I mean Brexit here was the big issue either you're you're pro-Brexit or you're a Remainer and people stop talking to each other. And it's, it's good at some point when people just realize, you know, not everything is about politics and we can still be friends. And I really hope the next four years will, um, especially with this apparently balanced outcome, will lead to, you know, people sitting together again and just working together and solving problems. I mean, depending on, depending on the outcome, we might have a shift in, in trade policy that might be, that might that, that might be better. Um, I mean, right now we're still dealing with um, tariffs on all types of American goods and vice versa. And it, it would be great if there was um, if there was if there was a way to solve these, these these trade issues and maybe even revive some of the old ideas. You know, I'm still I'm still a believer in in in, in TTIP. I I think there's there's opportunities to do something similar and then eventually have a trade agreement between the European Union and the United States because we managed to conclude, conclude one with, with Canada. So why shouldn't we have one with the United States as well? And maybe even include food. So, I mean, you know, dream big. Uh, so, so no matter what the administration, I hope they, in the next four years, will have, will have more exchange, commercial exchange between the two continents. Even though the political priorities might be different, there's still, there's still a, a great deal of products that I'd love to be able to shop here, and I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of European products that that, that the Americans would like to have access to as well. So, yeah, Hope, hopefully that's gonna that's gonna happen. Um, I think honestly, beside trade with the European Union, um, nothing is going to change for the average Italian. So uh, it's going to be the same. So the impact of the U.S. the U.S. elections in the Italians, uh, so the day-to-day -day life, the average Joe, I don't think anything is going to change. Uh, I think it's more an ideological perspective that America contrabalances sometimes what the European Union uh, and the Europeans, how they think about the, the, the presence and the, the whole of government. So that might change with the results of the U.S. elections. But besides that, I don't think anything is going to impact our lives uh, very much. So you're saying nothing is going to change for the average Giuseppe in uh, in Italy then? I was going to say that. <laughs> the average Mario. Yeah. Going to still have pasta and pizza. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, thank you guys uh, for joining us on this week's um, episode of Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, I know that you guys will be watching as the results continue to trickle in. So, uh Yes, stay safe out there. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream water. This land was made for you and me. Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. Awesome segment with our colleagues here at the Consumer Choice Center. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Um, Obviously, we're playing with fire here because we're trying to record during election time and numbers are coming in all the time, David. But uh, I think we provided some good material and maybe some international perspective that you guys don't really get to hear elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. Great episode. Um, It's always nice to have some, some, some outsiders looking in. I know that I fall into that category. Um, but folks who are, are completely kind of divorced from the North American political scene. Uh, so interesting to get their take. Uh, it's been, like I said, a heck of a week. It's, uh, yeah, uh, interesting results. We're still waiting for the final, final outcome. Uh, hopefully we get that soon. And uh, I appreciate all of you for, tu- for tuning in. And uh, we'll, we'll chat with you next week. And knock on wood, hopefully we, we, we have a clearer picture when we reconvene in a week's time. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. And as always, if you are listening online through your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio. Uh, thanks again. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream water. Sparkling sands of her diamond desert, and all around me a voice was sounding. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land, this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest. Stream water. This land was made for you and me. There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, said private property. But on the back side, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for Stream water.